AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky. Welcome to September's AJT Highlights podcast. Today I'm joined as always by Roz Mannon at University of Nebraska. And today we have a guest, Baba Karandi, who's faculty at UAB as part of uh, kind of tra training for AJT, a future editor, associate editor to be. And so uh, we're happy to have Babak and Roz here, and we've got a slew of really good papers for September, a nice mix of uh, different topics. Without further ado, why don't we get started with the overview of uh, the five articles that I'm going to give you the, the title of the articles and um, list them, and then we'll dive right in. So, and this is the order that we're going to do this today. So first paper is um, entitled Center, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Proposed Metrics for Recertification of Organ Procurement Organizations, Evaluation by the SRTR by Snyder et al. And uh, Babak will be going over that one. And then the second paper also uh, to be reviewed by Babak, the Association of Pre-Transplant Dialysis Exposure with Transplant Failure is dependent on the state-specific rate of dialysis mortality by John Gill et al. Then I'll be doing a liver paper, which comes from the French group, Artsner et al., that is entitled Liver Transplantation for Critically Ill Cirrhotic Patients, Stratifying Utility Based on Pre-Transplant Factors. And then I'll be doing another paper, which is kind of, it involves sort of all of organ transplant, which is about checkpoint inhibitors in transplant patients entitled Efficacy and Tolerance of Immune Checkpoint Inhibitors in Transplant Patients with Cancer, a Systemic Review by Izarni Gargas et al. And then Roz will finish with a paper by Zhao et al. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, called T-cell Exhaustion is Associated with Antigen Abundance and Promotes Transplant Acceptance. So we've got five papers, and um, Babak, why don't you start off with the uh, Oregon Procurement Organization paper? Okay, great. Thanks, Josh. So this first paper um, is motivated by the Advancing American Kidney Health Executive Order that the President issued in July of 2019. Section 7 of that order um, specifically focuses on increasing the utilization available of available organ organs. And it states that within 90 days of this order, the Secretary of HHS shall propose a regulation to enhance the procurement and utilization of organs available through de deceased donation by revising OPO rules and evaluation metrics to establish more transparent, reliable, and enforceable objective metri metrics for evaluating an OPO's performance. So fast forward to December of last year, and CMS proposed two new performance metrics that they want to apply to the 58 uh, organ procurement organizations across the country. The first metrics, metric is the donation rate, which is defined as the number of deceased donors divided by the number of potential donors within the OPO's donation service area, or DSA. And the second metric is the organ transplant rate, or the number of organs transplanted from deceased donors divided by the number of potential donors from the, within the OPO's DSA. Now, CMS is proposing uh, to decertify OPOs whose donation rate and transplant rate are lower than the 75th percent of the year of the prior year's donation and transplant rates. 
Both metrics rely on the number of potential donors as a denominator. So how a potential donor is defined for this metric is actually really important. And the way CMS has proposed it, donors will be identified using the detailed multiple cause of death data. And these are mortality data that are derived from information from all death certificates that are filled out in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. It excludes non-residents, so non-resident aliens, nationals living abroad, residents of Puerto Rico, Guam, U.S. Virgin Islands, and other U.S. territories. Those are all excluded. And these mortality data from the death certificates are then coded by individual states and then fed into the National Center for Health Statistics. And then from within this database, CMS is proposing identifying potential donors as those who are age 75 or younger, and those deaths have to occur in an inpatient setting, so the, that excludes the ED, any outpatient clinics, or death or, uh, determined to be uh, dead on arrival. And these decedents had to have the absence of exclusionary diagnoses defined by ICD-10 codes present in any position on the death certificate. So things like uh, non-melanoma non skin cell cancers don't count, but something like colon cancer or HCC uh, would be an exclusionary criteria. And then potential donors for this study were assigned to DSAs by the county in which they occur occurred. But because CMS in its notice of proposed rulemaking did not specifically map which county belongs to which donor service area, the authors used the mapping that SRTR uses for counties. And then for counties that are split between two different OPOs, which certainly happens, um, they use the last known official CMS assignment of the county to, uh, to assign all deaths within the county to that primary OPO serving that county. And then the study period was from January 1st, 2016 through December 31st, 2017, which is the most recent uh, data available. And it included all donors recovered during that period. And then consistent with the CMS proposal, actual donors were defined as those from whom at least one organ was transplanted or whose pancreas was used for research or islet cell transplant. And then the authors calculated the metrics that we talked about before for each OPO in an unadjusted fashion, just as CMS is proposing. But then they also wanted to see how adjusting for a number of different factors might change those, the OPO center OPO performance. But because the actual donor data came from the OPTN and the potential donor data came from CDC, they didn't all have the same variables. So authors only adjusted for the variables that were common to both data sources. So that was age, sex, race, Hispanic ethnicity, and cause of death. Using the actual donor data and the potential donor data, the authors were then able to estimate donor and transplant rates by OPO with 95% confidence intervals. So in 2017, there were 2.8 million deaths in the U.S., and after applying the proposed CMS criteria for what would constitute a potential donor, there were about 271,000 donors. So about 9.5% of all total deaths were considered potential donors. The authors also uh, tried out a couple of other published definitions of what might constitute a potential donor, um, and they found far fewer. 5.1% uh, based on criteria used by David Goldberg and colleagues in a paper that they published in AJT last year, and 1.8% using the OP, OPTN's deceased donor potential study criteria. Pot potential donors range, range from a low of 1,086 in the legacy of life, which is Hawaii, Hawaii's uh, service area, to a maximum of 12,924 in Southern California's one legacy uh, service area. Based on the 9,731 actual donors in 2017, there were 3.59 donors procured per 100 donors nationally. 
And that donation rate ranged from a low of 1.78 in the Arkansas Regional Organ Recovery Agency, OPO, to a high of 6.41 in the OPO for the University of Wisconsin. That same year, there were 32, over 32,000 organs transplanted with a national organ transplant rate of 11.82 organs transplanted per 100 potential donors. But that rate ranged as low as 5.02 in the New York Finger Lakes OPO to a high of 21.46 for 100 potential donors for the University of Wisconsin OPO. Now, remember, as I mentioned earlier, that CMS is proposing to decertify OPOs who donate, whose donation rate and transplant rate are lower than the 75th percentile of the prior year's donation and transplant rates. So based on 2016 data, in 2017, 62% of OPOs failed to meet the standard, and 64% failed to meet at least one of those standards. When the authors adjusted for the available variables, again, those are age, sex, race, Hispanic ethnicity, and cause of death, eight OPOs changed their pass-fail status for the donation rate and five for the organ transplant rate. In their discussion, the authors note that they replicated the donor and transplant counts that CMS identified in their proposal, but they actually couldn't replicate the potential donor count overall as a country or within each DSA, and this suggests they suggested that this may stem from how counties are assigned, assigned to OPOs by CMS versus SRTR, or how counties that are shared by more than one OPO get attributed. But I think getting this attribution correct will be critical if these metrics are to be used to judge and potentially decertify OPOs. The authors also note that risk adjustment should be considered as part of the new metrics because adjustment can allow for a fairer comparison of performance across OPOs. The authors also bring up the very important point about the benchmark, that 75th percentile benchmark, because based on the CMS proposal, an OPO is considered to pass if the upper boundary of their 95% confidence interval is above the 75th percentile. Because smaller OPOs will have fewer donors, they're going to have much wider confidence intervals, while larger, larger OPOs with a much larger number of uh, actual donors will have a much tighter 95% confidence interval. So that will disadvantage larger OPOs because the variance of that donation rate and the transplant rate will be inversely proportional to the sample size. Finally, the authors described some errors they found in the ICD-10 codes for exclusionary criteria that CMS proposed. They also take issue with the CMS proposed definition of a deceased donor, which is at least one organ transplanted or the pancreas sent for research or used for islet transplant. Because this definition is different from the OPTN definition, which has been endorsed by the World Health Organization and the Transplantation Society. And it defines a donor as a decedent from whom at least one organ was procured for the purpose of transplant. So you lose that part about the pancreas. The authors note that by changing this definition, seven OPOs changed their CMS decertification pass fail status. So in conclusion, the authors demonstrated that nearly two-thirds of the OPOs in the country would have failed the new CMS benchmarking in 2017. This paper certainly brings up more questions than it answers about how best to measure OPO performance. And with all the regulatory benchmarks, the study really shows the devil will be in the details and how it's executed. Thanks, Babic. That's a great summary of a very important paper. I think that, you know, debating this and, and recognizing, you know, more punitive action to OPOs has been something I haven't been a fan of because I recognize that there's some difficulty in the way these numbers are being analyzed. And, and as you point out, big OPOs, which tend to supply a lot of organs, seem to be getting penalized in some way. You know, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the total number of dead listed as potential donors, and I reflect on 
my experience here at a new center, but also at our at, at Alabama, where I used to be with you. Um, you know, we have a lot of rural hospitals. We have a lot of people dying. And I always remember that until we had the donor management center, sometimes physicians locally didn't recognize the potential of a donor to be a donor. Example, HIV or example, drug abuser. Oh, they don't want that kind of person, you know. So I think that this is a this is just a comment and just a long winded comment. But, you know, the, there's a bigger issue here and just sort of putting the onus on the OPO. I think the OPOs, some of them have to clean up their act and learn best practices because I think we all should be like UW. But any thoughts about this rural issue? You've been out on donor runs too. So you know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. No, I mean, I think that ultimately we have to be careful with every policy uh, change. There's a potential for negative and unintended consequences. Certainly, I think that we are, as a, as a transplant community, we are obliged to take up this issue. And I think that um, it's not just uh, the pressure is not just internal within our community, but rather this is this is an issue that's received a lot of lay press. And now there's actually a presidential order mandating it. And so we have been as a community probably too slow in, in dealing with this. But I think you're right. It may require OPOs to do some innovative things to try to 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 meet the metrics. Um, and to improve their performance. They may have better outreach. They may do more education in the community. I mean, there, there's an opportunity for good here, but I, but I certainly agree that there are a lot of potential pitfalls and we may end up decertifying OPOs that are actually doing an outstanding job. And so ultimately, like I said before, the devil will be in the details. Yeah, I agree. I think it, you kind of have to take this and make sort of lemons into lemonade, right? I mean, it, it has a little bit of a feel of a negative spin to it, but like you said, it's a, it should be the charge to try to improve the performance rather than sort of wallow in the fact that a, a lot aren't meeting, you know, the standard performance that would be expected. Absolutely. But, yeah. yeah. I think we have a responsibility, uh, you know, as a transplant community to really expand because the waiting lists keep growing. And I would hate to see them decertify big OPOs as in table two that, you know, I won't give names because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but, you know, I can look at three right now that would supply over a thousand donors and they could be decertified at the drop of a hat and, until they come back. And I, I don't think that that was the intent of the, I don't know what the intent exactly of that, of this met. I mean, I understand the metric attempt and we can do better, but I think this may be have inadvertent consequences. Well, we better move on because we're running out of time. You want to just quickly do the, the next paper? Sure. This is a paper by John Gill and colleagues. So in, in, the, introdu in the introduction of this study, they, the authors uh, note that given the high level of regulatory scrutiny of U.S. transplant centers, we're moving from OPO scrutiny to transplant center scrutiny, the benchmarks of post-transplant outcomes fail to consider the impact of regional differences in hemodialysis mortality on those outcomes. So their stated goal of the study was to determine whether the association of pre-transplant dialysis exposure with transplant failure was stronger, stronger among patients treated in places that had higher dialysis mortality. So using USRDS data, they divided the data starting in 1995 through 2012 into six equal three-year time periods. They identified adults 18 to 70 years of age who had hemodialysis as at least 90% of their uh, dialysis treatment modality and who received all of their dialysis treatments in the same state of residence. 
using Poisson modeling, they were able to determine state-specific dialysis mortality or mortality rates while adjusting for differences in patient, a number of patient um, uh, variables. They then constructed a multivariable Cox regression model to determine the association between the duration of pre-transplant dialysis and transplant survival. And then they developed a multi-level mixed effects modeling um, that adjusted for a number of recipient factors as well as the KDPI. And interestingly, they also adjusted for state level poverty and state level life expectancy. They then used an interaction term to determine if the association of pre-transplant dialysis duration was modified by dialysis mortality at the state level as, and characterized the, the dialysis mortality at the state level based by quartiles for state and period specific dialysis mortality rates. So that's kind of a lot, so it really does help to follow along with the paper if you're listening. But the authors found that the adjusted uh, dialysis mortality during those three-year time periods ranged from a low of 128 deaths per 1,000 patient years to 330 deaths per 1,000 per patient years. In reviewing the supplement, supplemental data, it was good to see that dialysis mortality rates have declined over the entire study period in every single state in the country, but that is a finding that's been previously reported. States with the highest dialysis mortality rates were Nevada, Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, and Maryland. And the authors confirmed the findings of previous studies that longer pre-transplant dialysis treatment was associated with an increased risk of transplant failure. That's not new. But they did find that for any given duration of dialysis exposure, the risk of transplant failure from any cause was higher among patients who received their pre-transplant dialysis treatment in a state and time period with a higher dialysis mortality rate. So the highest risk of transplant failure was in those with six or more years of pre-transplant dialysis exposure and who lived in the state with the highest quartile of dialysis mortality. Uh, their hazard of, of transplant failure was 1.61 compared to only 1.24 for the same patient who lived in a state in the lowest quartile of dialysis mortality. In additional analyses, they showed that the interaction of dialysis exposure and state-level dialysis mortality was not significant when the outcome was death-censored graft loss, but it was significant when the outcome was death with a functioning graft. In other words, these patients are dying with a functioning kidney. In the discussion, the authors point out that initiatives to improve the care of patients on dialysis, which have had relatively little emphasis on transplant, have actually have led to improvements in dialysis mortality, but that this, these, these efforts may have actually helped improve post-transplant outcomes as well. They also note that the association between dialysis vintage, state-level dialysis mortality, and transplant failure is largely driven by death with that functioning kidney. So that gives further credence to the hypothesis that longer dialysis exposure increases the progression of comor comorbid conditions, which also ultimately leads to the death of these patients rather than their kidney disease. So the authors are advocating that state-level dialysis mortality rates should be considered in the evaluation of transplant center performance by regulators, particularly as it relates to the development of models of expected post-transplant survival. So as with any study, there are going to be limitations. The study excludes peritoneal dialysis patients, and obviously they, they had to have all their dialysis in the same state, so if patients moved, they weren't included in it. It's also a retrospective observational, and there's a possibility of residual confounding. And also, it's not possible to determine in this study, if the associations they found, they found have been, are associated with the quality of dialysis that was administered or 
if state level dialysis mortality is a surrogate for other social or environmental factors that affect survival of dialysis patients and transplant recipients, though they did adjust for state level poverty and sex specific state level life expectancy. So a really interesting paper um, that sort of all takes another twist to the way we develop these regulatory benchmarks and really says that we need to look at the environment that our patients are in beyond just the care that we provide in determining transplant center performance. Well, that's a great summary, um, Babic, and I agree you have to sort of read the paper to see the figures, and, and there's a nice editorial by Elaine Koo. I agree. I mean, it's very easy for me to indemnify the dialysis community, and I think this paper tries at least to sort of sort a little bit out, although I read it and I was still sort of saying, okay, so, you know, if you live in a rural community where there's not a lot of access to health, healthy foods, you only have one hospital or maybe non, you're rural, you know, are your outcomes really related to that rather than, and, and your education and lack of insurance and you're dependent on Medicare, blah, blah, blah. Was that really more of the issue? And um, I, it, it really seems to be sort of, is it, it's a little bit of both, it almost seems like. And um, I don't know how really to move forward. I mean, I think this was all, again, another critical analysis based on the executive order to sort of improve metrics because metrics are gonna be really big in that executive order in terms of the dialysis. And so these models really are gonna have to take into account these morbidities and mortality pre, not just transplant, but it's gonna, that's also gonna affect the dialysis doctor who may not be reading this paper. No, I mean, I think that's a great point. I think that the it'll be important to 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 see how this plays out. I mean, I don't know that the it may not matter whether it's an issue of the dialysis care or whether it's just a marker for something else. But I think that either way, it, it's a it measures something that is outside the control of the transplant program. Yeah. Adjusting for that seems like a fair thing to do when you're trying to look at transplant center performance. Obviously, as health professionals, we have a, an obligation uh, to sort of think about the greater good of, of the overall community and, the, and community and public health. But as far as a transplant center program measurement, I think it's probably it's reasonable to sort of consider these factors that have a lot more to do with criminal justice, access to public health infrastructure, education, uh, things that are sort of outside the purview of a transplant program. Well, that was very well stated. Thanks for um, your contribution. You did a great month. job. It was excellent. You really, um, you know, took a deep dive into these papers. So, so thank you. It's been great having you. If you want to, you want to hang on. Um, we're going to do the rest of the three papers. We'd love to hear any comments uh, you have about these. I'll just go right into the next. I'm going to do the next two pretty quickly, just to, uh, you know, drive home the the key points. So the next paper I'm going to do is by Artsner et al. So this is a, a study that I thought was really interesting, kind of preliminary in terms of its findings, but definitely very compelling and also with the potential for significant clinical impact. So the authors are essentially addressing very sick patients on the liver transplant wait list and what can we do a better job at risk stratifying them going into transplant um, in terms of who is gonna do well with a transplant versus those who are going to not do well, meaning their mortality would be high after transplant, sort of you know, too sick to, too sick to transplant. And can we identify these patients preoperatively 
and potentially avoid transplanting people who are too sick or try to get them better, downgrade them so or improve them so that they have better outcomes with transplant. And I'm not sure the AJT readers are as familiar with the term ACLF because it really hasn't been published much in AJT. It's been a, there's been a lot of effort to define ACLF, which is acute on chronic liver failure in other journals, um, more hepatology journals, but it's nice to see it here because it really, it's an important risk stratifier for someone undergoing a transplant. So I think that's why it ended up appropriately, appropriately in AJT. What the authors did is they took patients who had very severe um, ACLF, which is ACLF3, which means that they have three or more organ failures. So that's an easy way to remember it. And, and when you think about organ failures, it's cardiovascular, renal, uh, brain, respiratory, et cetera. And so if you have three or more, um, you're a very sick patient who has a very high chance of dying in the next 30 days. And so the group wanted to see if um, those in ACLF3, uh, which of those uh, would have a good outcome with transplant versus a poor outcome, meaning can we identify those who are too sick to transplant? And what they did is they, um, there were four centers in, in France and they used one as a test set to develop a model called TAM, which is um, transplant for ACLF model. Um, so it sort of is you take ACLF3 patients and they developed a model out of those that is sort of a risk stratifier within that group for outcomes with transplant. And so they had a training cohort of 76 patients and then a validation cohort that included three other liver transplant centers in France. And they developed this TAM score, which in the training set had a very good prediction of post-transplant mortality by one year after. And these are all factors that can be determined at the time of transplant. And so they include um, age greater than 53, arterial lactate greater than four, respiratory fail, presence or absence, but presence of respiratory failure is a risk factor, and a low pre-liver transplant leukocyte count actually was a risk factor for post-transplant death. And so they, you score it by one each, and they were able to find that if you had a score of three or four, essentially greater than two, um, your chance of dying post-transplants was very high. It's about 8 point, uh, or actually surviving was very low, 8.3% by, by a year. Whereas if you had a score of two or less, your chance of being alive was 83%. So significantly different. So if you had a score of three or more, meaning you had one of these four variables, you had a, the presence of them. So older age, high lactate, respiratory failure, and low leukocyte count. If you had three or four of those, your chance of, di of dying was very high in the first year post-transplant. And then they tested it on a, an independent cohort of three centers, sort of a validation set, and found basically the same thing, that your chance of being alive at a year was about 10% with a score of greater than two. Now, this study, just to kind of summarize, um, really helps identify a cohort of patients that are very unlikely to survive, survive after transplant. 
And um, the nice part is that the, all these patients got transplanted and the outcomes were looked at. Of course, they didn't include people who didn't get transplanted who had these you know, high scores. So it's hard to really uh, you know, compare those who don't get transplanted. But we know that those who do get transplanted that have high TAM scores um, do, uh, do very poorly. What is the clinical impact of this? I, I think this needs to be validated in a much larger population. This study was, even though it was a pretty large study of ACLF3, which is not a very common situation, uh, meaning someone is in advanced organ failure on the liver transplant waiting list. You know, they only had 150 or so patients and only 22, a small percentage of the patients, um, 22 of them had had a TAM score of three or four. So they're really, you're really trying to find that small subset that's going to do poorly with transplant. But this really needs a larger validation. I think a U.S. validation court or other cohorts around the world would be very important to validate this score because this was only in France. But it, it certainly speaks to um, being able to predict patient death before a transplant who's not going to benefit from an organ transplant. It's not to say to use this score to now go right into excluding people because I think it needs to be validated, but it, it does make you really think about patients who have multiple factors here that they're not going to, they're unlikely to benefit from transplant. You may be wasting an organ. The one thing that this does not include, which I think is important, is anything in relation to the transplant procedure itself, the organ donor, what happens afterwards, the management afterwards, which, again, it's hard to imagine anything could be done when you have that low of survival rate afterwards. But it certainly doesn't in include donor, uh, the things that happen at transplant and afterwards. But I think that's useful because by the time that's happened, you've already done the transplant and a predictive score isn't too helpful at that point. So, you know, in summary, I think this is a very helpful initial study. It needs to be validated, but I, I definitely am going to think about this in my practice when I see patients who are very sick like this, ACLF3, about calculating or looking at these scores and trying to, and, and perhaps using it, you know, for, for, for at least to help in some decision-making. It's not going to tell you everything, but it may guide so I, I, I thought it was a very useful study, and there's a nice editorial by Vinay Sundaram, who's at Cedar sinai a well-known expert in ACLF3, and he kind of said the same thing as, as I did, and that there are certain factors that are not accounted for in the model, but it certainly needs um, further validation. Yeah, I mean, I think we all sort of know as these patients, you know, the more organ systems that are failing, the, the worse our outcome is going to be. But sort of continuing on our theme of metrics and measurement, it's nice to have some, you know, some scoring system in place to kind of help guide and quantify uh, the thought process about whether or not a patient should be taken to transplant. Yeah, and I, I think the, like we talked about making uh, lemonade out of lemons, I think the what they did show is that those ACLF3 who are very sick, those who scored like zero and one actually do really well. So we can actually transplant these very sick patients, but if they have multiple factors within that ACLF3 that are bad, that's kind of the situation you don't want to be in. All right, well, um, let me just spend a little bit of uh, a few minutes on this checkpoint inhibitor review, which I thought was 
uh, a really nice study. Not too the results were not too surprising, but you know, very helpful I think because we we're increasingly seeing these patients who are being treated with checkpoint inhibitors who've had organ transplants. And so what this group did, and this is an, another group from France who basically did a, a systematic review of all of the published reports of patients who had organ transplants that had checkpoint inhibitors, either uh, PD-1 or PD-L1 or anti-CTLA-4 uh, therapy for a malignancy post-transplant. And um, they were able to find 83 cases in the literature from about 48 reports or, or short series. And essentially the goals were to, to see if, you know, what, was the, what were the outcomes of the patients, particularly in regard to acute rejection, which is the biggest uh, risk factor because you're, you're stimulating the immune response, sort of the opposite of uh, immunosuppression. And what were their outcomes from rejection and what were their overall outcomes like? So if they rejected, but their cancer went into remission, then that might be a good outcome uh, versus the opposite. And so they found uh, 83 patients, about two thirds were kidney and about a third liver and a, a few heart. There were six heart patients. Um, the most common malignancy was melanoma fo followed by hepatocellular carcinoma and then a, a smattering of others. About two, uh, three quarters were given the PD-1, PD-L1 antagonist as opposed to CTLA-4. And so um, the rejection rate was uh, about 40% with uh, these therapies, which I think is, is high, but not too surprising when you think about the, um, the uh, immunobiology. Uh, the time to rejection was on average 5.6 weeks. So it doesn't happen right away, although it happened sooner in the liver than the kidney patients. Of those who had rejection, there was a high rate of end-stage organ failure of 71%. So rejection happening is quite uh, detrimental, um, but it was about 40% of the patients. Then they kind of looked at uh, risk factors for developing rejection, like is there anything that we can do? And they found that uh, patients who've been kind of weaned off immunosuppression because of malignancy or on a little bit of steroids had a much higher risk of rejection. So the impetus to wean somebody off or wean them down really low off of like a calcineurin inhibitor or an antimetabolite uh, may predispose somebody to rejection with the therapy. So it's sort of this balance of, of doing something like that to help the cancer, but uh, it may be detrimental if you're going to use one of these therapies. Um, the other thing they found, not surprising, is that the longer you were further out from transplant, the less likelihood of rejection that speaks towards kind of tolerance occurring over time. And then they, um, they also found that anybody who had a previous rejection episode um, had a higher risk of acute rejection. So these may help at least risk stratify uh, because clearly rejection is a detrimental problem when they develop it in this current situation. Now, one question is, were all these deaths related to rejection? In fact, uh, most of the deaths were related to cancer progression, unfortunately. And there was a there was a about a little bit under a third of the patients who did really well. So they they went into remission with their cancer and didn't have rejection. And it sort of is speaks to like how do we identify that patient population and how, it, how do we avoid rejection? Again, maybe keeping them on 
baseline immunosuppression at a low level, particularly if they've had a history of rejection, would be a good idea to avoid rejection with PDL1 or anti-CTLA4 therapy. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that the kidney group, whether they had rejection or not, did about the same, whereas the liver and heart group did terribly when they had rejection in terms of survival. And my guess is the kidney patients just went on dialysis, whereas the liver and heart, you don't really have that as a backup. And then they can't get an organ transplant, of course, if they go into acute liver failure because they've got metastatic cancer. So I think maybe the liver and the heart, you have to be really careful about. Um, it, it's a difficult clinical situation, though. We, I've faced this many times, but I think this paper helps helped me think about this in a way that maybe I can do something to prevent uh, rejection from happening uh, with, with that. I think the, the key thing was sort of the risk factor profile here and how to you know, mitigate developing rejection. So I think very useful, um, and I'm, I'm happy this was done because it's something that you see all these like different reports and now somebody finally put this together to, to answer some of these questions. I, and I agree with you, Josh, it's hard because we don't have a ton of these patients. And even at big centers where we have a big cancer center and we have mm -hmm. a lot of transplants. It's increasing. It's, it's yeah, increasing. it's it's hard to, to get this kind of data. And, and there's a recent um, working group from the Brigham with Dr. Murakami and colleagues trying to pull this together on a voluntary basis to create a registry because I agree with you, it's hard to know. I'm struck by the immunosuppression reduction stuff, so I think that's a great point. They had quite a, they had a, quite a few number of patients on mTOR, but you know, I I tend to not pull everybody off stuff, and you know, it's a lot of these solid tumors have it's immune surveillance. It's not like it's you know HPV or EBV related tumor, and I think there's yeah. just a lot of aggressive reduction. You know, some of it is because they're on chemo and you're having trouble with their white count. But I think your points are well taken, and I do think a lot of these transplants for kidney or go on, unfortunately, on dialysis, and so that's maybe why their death rate is a little bit lower. But which isn't good, but it's still you know if they go on dialysis and their cancer goes into remission, then maybe that's better than dying from their metastatic cancer. Hard to say. I, obviously, if we had, you know, double, triple, quadruple the numbers, we could do a better risk factor analysis and outcome analysis. But I, I think it, I thought it was helpful for sort of a, a clinically relevant and impactful paper. All right, I think we're ready for the finale. Now we have less than five minutes to do right. a fascinating paper. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to kill it. You know, the basic scientists think I'm a clinician and the clinicians think I'm a basic scientist. So I'm <laughs> going to give you a mixed translational Rosman in review. So this is a fascinating paper by uh, Zhu and colleagues from the Houston Methodist. I call it the Transplant Research Institute, but it's really the Transplant Science Center in their Institute for Basic Science and Academic Medicine, looking at the role of T-cell exhaustion. So again, this is a concept we don't think a lot about clinically. It's clear that if you repeatedly immune stimulate T-cells, you can exhaust them, things like chronic infections and or cancer, like we just talked about. And these T-exhausted cells or TEC cells don't make the usual cytokines. They have high levels of inhibitory receptors like PD-1 and LAG3 and TIGIT. They don't proliferate as well in vitro. 
and they really lose ability to manage chronic infections. And you can think of things like TB and, and chronic osteo. There's an important transcription factor that um, called tox. It's text and tox. So if you can't remember anything, you can just pop up on rounds and say tox. And that's a thymocyte selection associated high mobility group box protein. It's highly expressed in these exhausted cells and it's proposed to be a key driver. So why are we talking about this paper? Well, these guys in, in this group hypothesize that there could be a role of exhausted cells in graft acceptance and how um, and whether this is actually a phenomenon that occurs isn't clear. Certainly in, in animal studies using co-stimulatory blockade, you can see an upregulation of PD-1 on T cells, but I would call that T cell dysfunction as do they. They're not, you know, actually exhausted. So they they use a couple of different animal models to look at CD8 T-cell exhaustion and CD4 T-cell exhaustion. They have to do this because the way they measure the number of exhausted cells, these taxes is different between animal groups. So in CD8, in the CD8 model, they're able to use tetramers, which look at antigen-specific T-cells, and it's much easier to do that. And the long and short of it is if you do this in a skin graft model, if the bigger graft that you put on the animal, this is a tail skin graft, the bigger grafts are more likely to, to result in T-cell exhaustion and more cells that per, per, persist within the graft and around the graft um, than if you have a smaller graft. And so that's one concept, that antigen load is associated with T-cell exhaustion. And it's a little complicated for me to explain the CD4 cells because they require some cross, they cross some, a set of animals and they use these congenic strains so they can track these cells in the other animals. But essentially, I'll just point out that if they take these cells that are antigen specific and put it in a mouse and then give the mouse a graft, the graft rejects and they see the exhausted cells kind of come up and go away. If they just adoptively transfer these cells to an F1 strain where there's a lot of the antigen present chronically, no transplant, they can show that these exhausted cells kind of don't appear and then they just appear and they exist and they circulate in these animals. And, and they do some genomic expression looking at markers, which is interesting, including upregulation of tox. But the piece de resistance to me is they took these persistently, these TEX cells that were in this mouse model that were sort of persistent, they threw it in a rag knockout. That's a mouse that doesn't have T cells or B cells. They threw those cells and they slapped a graft on it that should be antigen specific, and the graft persists. So voila, they can show a proof of concept that these tech cells don't respond to antigen on a secondary restimulation as you normally would. So cool paper. The question you all are asking is, does this matter? Does this happen in people? And I think that keeps everybody in business because we need to look for that. Um, it's not clear if this happens in people, certainly in studies of co-stimulatory blockade and, and antigen responses, we've done multicolor flow and look for them. If the size of the graft is important, that matters in humans. Is it the size of the graft or the type of graft? So I think a liver to me is gigantic and yet it's really well tolerated, but you know, you take a kidney with a pancreas and it's troublesome or a lung. So maybe it's the type of tissue and the way the antigen is presented. And again, this is skin grafts. Skin grafts are non-vascularized and very immunogenetic. And another important point is that this mechanism of exhaustion apparently is dependent on NFAT activation. And as you may remember, calcineurin inhibitors block NFAT activation and IL-2 transcription. And so 
it's possible that the the CNI's long term may interfere with this potentially hopeful exhaustion that may provide graphs to stick around longer. So, you know, does it happen? Does it matter? And can you do this in people if it does matter? Can you do it and manipulate the system so you can retain your graph longer without adverse events like more chronic infection? I thought that part was really interesting that you just mentioned, which was the NFAT and the fact that maybe to get exhaustion, you need sort of chronic antigen or chronic stimulation of the T cell to kind of overburden it and make it exhausted. There's a, a nice little um, uh, editorial by Mandy Ford. So I'm going to tell the readership that may be more clinical to not be afraid to read these papers. But I would recommend doing the editorial first as some background mm. and then taking your time kind of walking through because this was really a well-written paper and you know, just fascinating how they elegantly kind of put these models together. It may not have been that way in the lab. It might have been like a lot of animals and fur and things going on, but they put a great mm. paper together. And it's, you know, something that I think might is paradigm shifting. All right. Well, thanks to both of you. This was great. A lot of nice variety this time around. And Tarek, I think we've got you later on in the year, right? Or maybe next year? That's correct. We'll see you in and, six uh, we'll, months. You'll be seasoned by then. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.